0: Well, as Jim announced, we are turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll be looking at the first 11 verses, so not the whole chapter, the first 11 verses. Thank you very much for So what we've seen over the past few weeks as we've looked at this letter to the church at Corinth is that the Corinthians were fantastically gifted by God. God had given them many spiritual gifts and this is commended by Paul as he writes to them. The Spirit of God was working in their midst and yet in the midst of so much that was good and so much life and vitality there was also serious corruption in the church at Corinth as well. Uh, So there were all kinds of problems that you wouldn't imagine to be found within a church. There was pride, there was divisions, there was fighting, there was worldliness, there were lawsuits and all kinds of immorality, even incest and much more. So it was really, really um, massively problematic, even though there was much good. And when we look at the kind of problems that were in the church at Corinth, it kind of shocks us, even as we read it to this day as we see the kinds of problems that existed there. And yet, it's also a bit of a comfort to us in the 21st century, because when we see us facing the same kinds of problems that they were facing in the 1st century, well, it then means that what Paul has to say to them comes in freshness to us, because it makes us realise that the word that was written to them back in the 1st century is just as relevant to us today, and it speaks to us with fresh life And the particular problem that we're going to be looking at today, in this first part of chapter 6, is the problem of lawsuits. Because what was happening was that the believers at Corinth were taking each other to court, fighting each other over all kinds of disputes, rather than resolving these disputes amicably amongst themselves. And Paul's really concerned about this, because it basically makes the church the laughing stock of the world. Everyone was laughing at them, because they couldn't agree in anything, and they were having to take each other to courts to resolve these issues. Now, I have to be clear about one thing to begin with, that these were civil cases, and for the most part trivial cases, these were not criminal cases that were being dealt with. And I'm going to come back to that point, because it's important to note that up front. So what we've got is all kinds of disputes about things like property, about money, about contracts, and brothers and sisters are taking each other to court to get their pound of flesh, simply because they can't agree together. Now, if you keep your eye on the news you 'll discover all kinds of interesting cases on the media at one point or another. Um, we know that in the u k at the minute we 've got the famous Wagatha Christie case going on at the minute. and if you don 't know about Wagatha Christie if you don 't know about it, um, don 't worry about it basically it 's footballers wives suing each other over who 's been leaking their private lives to the press and in the states you 've got actors like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard arguing with each other over um, over defamation of character. And people love these kinds of stories because it's all gossipy and it gets into people's private lives. And you think to yourself, oh, well, that's, that's what footballers' wives for you, or that's actors for you. You know, they can't agree with one another. But you can imagine the kind of devastating this impact this kind of thing had in Corinth. When the gossip started to spread about believers that were suing each other over stupid things and the gossip would have been spreading, uh, oh did you hear about Demetrius? You know, fictional names, I'm just making this up, you know, they'd be saying, did you hear about Demetrius? He, he's suing Diana because apparently the material that she provided for his business isn't good enough and to be all this gossip floating around Corinth and before you knew it, people's Repu- the reputation of Christians would have been just in tatters the cause of Christ would have been just a laughing stock simply because believers couldn't get along with one another they had to sue each other in court but before we say any more about this let's read what paul has to say and um, think about it in more detail so we're reading from first corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1 if you've got a bible you can follow along and if you don't you can just listen to what paul has to say and i'm reading from the niv paul writes If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you've got lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And this is God's word. Now what we can see here is that things were in a pretty bad state in Corinth. And what Paul's pointing out is this whole problem with them having lawsuits with each other. And what he's driving towards in this passage is fine for us in the crux of the chapter in verse 11. You see, the reason why they were suing each other and behaving so badly towards each other is they hadn't grasped the reality that they were new people. They weren't the people that they used to be. They were new people. And so Paul has to remind them in verse 11, that is what some of you wear. That's what you wear. It's not what you are. That's what you wear. But, he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so Paul is drawing his attention to this point in verse 11 that a radical change has taken place in their life and if they are going to change then they need to grasp what has taken place. They need to live in a new way because of what God has done. And with that principle in mind Paul then begins in the first eight verses by explaining how they ought to deal with these disputes. If they're new people, then they need to deal with their disputes in a different way from the way they used to. Then in verses 9 and 10, he gives them a warning as new people not to go back to the way they used to live. Because they are changed. They can't live as if nothing had happened. And then in verse 11, he gives them assurance as new people that they are truly changed. And the reason why they're not to go back is because there has been this radical transformation that God has brought about in their lives. So let's think about these different points. Now the first eight verses then deal with this problem of disputes. Disputes these lawsuits. And Paul begins by asking them, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints, the Lord's people? He's not thinking about special kinds of Christians when he talks about saints. He's thinking about the Lord's people. And so the problem was that instead of resolving these disputes among themselves, they were taking it to secular courts And so what Paul clearly expects is that when Christians have disagreements and disputes with each other, they should be resolving it in-house rather than having to go to court. Now, like I said, it's important to note that these are civil cases rather than criminal cases. And this is important to point out. And the reason why you can see this, the the evidence for this, you can see it in verse 2, for example. He talks about the trivial cases or the smallest cases that are being dealt with. These aren't serious matters that need to be dealt uh, by by proper authorities. These aren't criminal issues. Again, in verse 7, he suggests that the problems that are occurring here are things to do with being cheated or being defrauded, And again, it's important to note that this isn't a criminal issue. And the reason why it's important to point this out is because some people have read passages like this and have used this as an excuse to gloss over and hide over serious criminal problems in the church. And that's not something that we can do. The Lord has established proper authorities to deal with um, things which are legally wrong, criminally wrong. And in such cases, it's proper that Christians take those cases to the proper authorities rather than dealing with them in-house. And I mean, that's always a shame. It always brings reproach in the church when such cases have to go to court, criminal cases. But it's even more of a shame when we try to gloss over them and try to pretend that everything's okay and try to deal with it rather than taking it to the proper authorities. And so that's an important point to note, that what Paul's talking about here are civil cases. It's not about criminal cases. So then, Um, With that in mind, he then explains in the following verses how ridiculous it is that they're actually having to go to court to try and resolve these issues. In verses 2 and 3, he points out that because we're new people, we've been given a new destiny. We've been given new privileges which are yet to be revealed in the future because of who we are in Christ. And he says, do you not know that the saints, the Lord's people, will judge the world? Again, he goes on in verse 3 and he says, do you not know that we will judge angels? Now, he doesn't go into details of exactly how this is all going to be worked out. But Paul understands that because of who we are in Christ, because we have been joined to Jesus Christ, his future is our future. Because he will come and will rule this world in a coming day, Paul knows that we too will rule with Christ. We will be given responsibility, says Paul, to judge the world to administer justice in this world, and even, he says, to judge angels themselves. And this will be something which we will be equipped to do because God's Spirit will give us the necessary wisdom to do that. And yet it's not just something that we're going to get wisdom to do in the future, but because we already have God's Spirit, Paul has pointed out in previous chapters, that already we have been given wisdom from God that we should then know how to deal with disputes between brothers and sisters. And so that even now, ahead of what's going to happen in the future, we should be able to apply God's wisdom in the church and resolve disputes between believers. And then in verse 4, he highlights how ridiculous it is, that they are, they're asking for decisions, they're asking for adjudication of disputes by those whose way of life is held in low esteem by the church, it's scorned by the church. They looked upon those outside in the world who didn't hold to Christian values, who didn't hold to the wisdom that had been given from God, and they were taking their cases to them and asking them to adjudicate it. And it's simply ridiculous to actually try and ask for this adjudication from those whose way of life simply was completely inconsistent with Christian standards. And another incongruity uh, with what they're doing is finding the fact that they prided themselves in their wisdom. We've already seen that um, in chapters one and two. They were so proud of the wisdom that they had and they boasted in the different preachers that they had amongst them and said, oh, this one's really wise. And they gloried in worldly wisdom. And yet Oh, he looks at them and he says come on are you telling me then that you don't have the wisdom to deal with your own disputes in the church is that the extent to which you've sunk you pride yourself in your wisdom and yet you can't even sort out your own petty squabbles and he asks then is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between brothers there's a hint of sarcasm there but it's not just sarcasm because he genuinely believes like I said that Christians have been given wisdom from God That through the Spirit of God, we know God's mind, and we should be able then to deal with the problems that occur in the church. And so for Paul then, this whole problem uh, of taking believers to court is an absolute shame. And he says in verse 7 that it is a defeat for them. It's an utter defeat for them to actually arrive up at this point where they've sued one another. Rather, as Christians, it would be far better if they learned to turn the other cheek when things are done to them that are wrong. Far better to be wronged, far better to be cheated than to actually resort to taking revenge against brothers and sisters by trying to get your pound of flesh. Because that's what was happening here. He says that they are cheating and wronging their own brothers and sisters. And I think one of the reasons why he says that was because courts in those days, uh, Roman civil courts, weren't the same kind of um, courts that we have today. Uh, Generally, our courts in the UK are apprised for having um, a degree of, of fairness about them. Yet in the Roman world, money was the thing that gave you most clout, And it's still true to some extent today, but basically, if you've got enough money, you can sue people and you can win your case. And so what Paul's concern here is that not only are they suing one another, but it's an abuse of power and privilege, People that are less well off, who can't defend themselves, are being holed up in court. And they are wronging, they are cheating their own brothers and sisters. And it's a crying shame. It's a mess, the whole situation. And you can imagine the kind of tensions that must have produced in the church when they gathered together on the Lord's Day. You can imagine one group sitting across in the corner, Demetrius and his pals, and they're looking across at Diana and her pals, and they're staring daggers at each other, simply because they're having this civil dispute that's running along. And how are they then supposed to sit down together and worship the Lord Jesus together? It simply didn't work. And more than that, it brought the whole church into disrepute. And that's what I've already mentioned. Um, the place where I live, we've got, our, we've got our own Facebook group. And it allows us a nice little place where we can talk to one another about the various different issues that are going on in our state. But it has become known as the Middles Farm Wingers Group to to people that know of it. Simply because there's so much complaining and bickering that goes on about it. Um, And so the the reputation of our stay isn't too too much to get worried about. But we've developed a bit of a bad reputation. But how much worse then when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ develops this kind of reputation for people that just can't get along with each other. For people that are always bickering and complaining. uh, Because that's an absolute shame. Because in the church, uh, God seeks to display his glory. God seeks to display the change that he has produced in this world. God wants people to look upon the church as a kind of embassy of heaven. And so that when you look at the church, you're able to see the work of God actually taking place on earth. You're able to see how God has transformed sinners into people that are for the praise of his glory. Um, The church, then, is a kind of outpost of the kingdom of God. Before the Lord Jesus Christ returns, the church is an outpost signalling the beauty of what is yet to come. But what if its reputation, then, is one of just of people that, that can't get along? people that just fight with each other, people that sue one another. That would be an awful shame, wouldn't it? And what about us here at Bencham? What's our reputation like in the community? Well, I'm thankful that for the most part, (laughs) for for the most part, that God has blessed us here in Bencham because we we don't fight and devour one another. And yet, it's important to be aware of this ahead of time so that if and when disputes arise, we know how to deal with them. It's important to be aware of it so that if and when situations arise, when there's some kind of dispute about money or a dispute about people slandering one another, then we're actually able to sit down together as brothers and sisters and actually just thrash it out and actually just resolve the issue rather than having to drag things to unbelievers and so just demonstrate to unbelievers that we just don't have a clue what we're doing. That would be a crying shame. And so if, if there ever arises occasion, you know, where maybe I, I owe to doozy money or something and I haven't paid him back, rather than doozy trying to take me to a small claims court, I'm actually just sitting down with some of their brothers and sisters and saying, well, let's, let's sort this out together. And so at the forefront of our minds together, together should be that we want to reveal to the world around us that what God has done in our midst is a wonderful thing. God has made us new. So that people can come here and see that actually, this isn't just people that are just the same as everybody else. These are people that have been transformed by God's spirit. And this is a good place to be. So that's, that's what Paul has been driving at in these first eight verses. But then he comes in 9 and 10 to a warning. Because they've been going back to this old way of life. Their lawsuits, their squabbling, their immorality. It's a real problem. And he's got to then put in this warning to warn them against ever going back to who they used to be. And so in verse 8, he's accused them of wronging one another. He says that they do wrong, or they do unrighteousness. And then in verse 9, he warns, do you not know that the wrongdoers, those who do unrighteousness, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's tying this back to the way they've been behaving and he's saying, do you not know that people that live like that, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Well, he knows that they know this. He says, do you not know? But he knows that they know. The reason why he stated it in this way is because they're acting as if they don't know any better. And so he's calling their attention to things that they know and said, come on, you should know this. You shouldn't be living like this. And he says that that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom that he's referring to here is the kingdom that is yet to come over which the Lord Jesus Christ will reign in a coming day. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, as as we've already been thinking about, he's going to come and he's going to reign and we're going to share in that reign with him and we're going to judge the world with him. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and that then is the inheritance, the possession of all true believers. We will inherit the kingdom of god will receive it from the lord jesus christ and paul then warns them that the unrighteous the wrongdoers will not inherit that kingdom they'll not enter that kingdom and then he goes on to explain exactly what he means by the unrighteous these wrongdoers but before we think about the description of these unrighteous people, these, these wrongdoers, let's be clear that what Paul is not saying here is that we have to earn our way or work our way into God's kingdom. He's not saying that if you reach a particular standard of life, then that grants you admittance into God's kingdom in the future. He's not saying that. Because again and again, Paul's emphasis is that, that receiving God's gift of new life is a gift He gives us forgiveness. He reconciles us as a gift when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him. So what Paul is saying here is not that we earn our way in, but what he is saying is that when we have received this gift of new life from God and be transformed by the Spirit of God, then we are genuinely changed. We can't go back to the old way that we used to live And so what he's doing here when he's describing these people who are are wrongdoers is he's describing people who don't know God. He's saying these are the, the kinds of people that are in the world who don't know God. You're not them. You used to be them, as he's going to say in verse 11, but you're not them. Nor is he saying that Christians could never commit sins like this. Because Christians do commit some of these sins. But what he's saying here is that because of the change that has been produced, these things are not the habitual character of Christians. We don't habitually live in the ways that he's describing here because a Christian is someone who's been made new. So let's then have a think about this list of wrongdoers. And it's quite a long list. He says in verse 9, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's quite a searching list. Because it's not just really bad things, if we want to use that term. It's not just the really bad sins that are listed here. It's things like greed. It's things like. Uh, um, greed it is one of the biggest sins. And slander is one, another one of the things. It is one of the biggest sins of all. And, and what Paul is emphasising here is that this covers a whole range of negative character traits that we must stay away from as Christians. So when he mentions things like greed and slander, like who amongst us as Christians can say that we've never done any of these things? Uh, of course we have. There's been times when we've been greedy, covetous. There's been times when we've slandered others, we've said things about other people that we shouldn't have said, that have defamed their good character. Um, And Paul's point isn't that, that we should then start to doubt our salvation and think, well, maybe we're not actually going to inherit God's kingdom because I've done some of these things. No, Paul's point is to get us to evaluate our our claim to be new people, if we genuinely believe that God has worked in our lives through his spirit to make us new, then we've got to live up to that. We can't go back to this old way of life where we're greedy, where we're slanderers, where we're immoral. We've got to live out these new lives and we cannot then let such sins dominate us. We've got to eradicate these sins from our lives wherever we actually see them occurring. Now, most of these things in the list don't need to be justified much, and I don't have time to go through all of them. But um, I'm going to pick out one, just because over the past few decades, there's been increasing emphasis on rehabilitating some of these sins and presenting them as things that are actually quite acceptable in today's society. And I want to draw draw our attention to just one of these things, to just point out what Paul's saying and what he's not saying. Paul, he mentions men who have sex with men or, as the Greek text put it, active and passive participants in these acts. Um, And it's important to think about this because when people read this in today's world, this comes across as being really oppressive. It comes across as being really insensitive, as being a violation of people's true identities. Because in the world that we live in today, people define themselves by their desires that is, if you under- want to understand who you truly are, then you've got to understand your desires because they define you. And what, one of the worst things you could do then would be to be untrue to yourself. If you want to be true to yourself, then you've got to evaluate your desires and you've got to live out those desires. And if you don't do that, then people will say that you're living an inauthentic existence. You're, you're living a fake life. And this is the way that the world thinks about this. And so when Paul comes along and says that this is a sin, people read that and they think, well, actually, this is really repressive, Paul. This is really, really outdated. You can't think like that. But this idea that our desires, our our sexual desires, are a fundamental part of our identity is a very modern notion. And that's not the way that Paul thinks about it. Because when we look at the way Paul thinks about it in verse 10 and verse 11, what he sees is that our identity is wrapped up with Jesus Christ. We are defined not by our desires. We are defined by who we are in Jesus Christ. We are defined by who the Spirit of God has made us to be. We are not defined by our desires or by our sexual desires, whether heterosexual or homosexual. Those things Do not define us. And because of that, then Paul will say to us that what we need to do, whoever we are, whatever our desires are, is to bring everything under the lordship of Christ. And so that we submit all of our desires, all of our aspirations, all of the things we feel, all of the things we think, under the lordship of Jesus Christ and say that he is our lord, he is our master, and we live under his authority. For some Christians then, to actually live this out, this will actually mean a life of celibacy, a life of singleness. And that will be difficult, particularly difficult in today's world, where they will be mocked as being inauthentic, as being fake, for living out that kind of faithful life. And so the important thing for us as Christians is that when we have brothers and sisters amongst us that are actually seeking to live faithfully to God, who are seeking to bring their lives under the, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we should esteem them and support them for seeking to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus. So, that's just a bit of an aside. And what Paul has done then is he's gone through this list of characteristics and he warns the Christians that they cannot go back to that old way of life. Because to go back would mean to forfeit all that they had in God's kingdom. And so there's no going back. They can't go back. Such habits and vices are the patterns of the world, they're not the patterns of God's people. In many ways, it was like the experience of the Israelites when they left Egypt. You remember they left Egypt, and in Egypt they'd experienced slavery, they'd experienced idolatry, And many of them had been corrupted by that way of life. And so when they come out into the desert and God leads them through the wilderness, that idolatry starts to creep in again and they start to worship a golden calf. And again and again, we see God chastising them for the way that they keep on going back in their hearts. And God warns them against this for centuries. until He warns them very strongly that if they keep going the way they're going, he's going to disinherit them. They're not going to have an inheritance in the place that God has prepared for them. And that then very much forms the background to what Paul's saying here. He's saying that we've got a future inheritance laid up for us. All that Jesus Christ is going to come into in the future is ours. But if we're going to possess that inheritance, we need to live as people who have been transformed by God's Spirit. We can't go back in our hearts the way that the Israelites went back to their idolatry and corruption. And the reason why then we need to listen to such warnings is because we realise that it's only by God's grace that we can keep going. It's only by God's power working within us through his spirit that we can actually persevere and get to the end goal. And so we heed these warnings and we seek to eradicate these sins from our life, wherever we see them, so that we will demonstrate in our lives that we are new people and so that we will share in that glorious future that the Lord Jesus Christ will provide for us. But then we come to the last point, verse 11. Paul, he doesn't just have warnings for the Corinthians. He's not just warning them about bad things that will happen because he's got an assurance for them that they really are new people. And that's what he's been building towards. Yes, they might have gone back in some respects and started to behave like the people that they used to be. But they are not the people that they used to be. And that's what Paul is stressing here. And he calls them to recognise who they are. And so he says in verse 11, after going through that list of kinds of people that they used to be. And he says, that is what some of you were. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And these are powerful words, because he comes to them and he says to them, that's what you used to be, that's what, such, uh, that's what some of you used to be. And whoever was reading Paul's letter to the Corinthians would have looked around his audience as he was reading it out loud, and he would have seen the people that used to be adulterers, the people that used to be idolaters, the people that used to be drunkards, the people who used to be steeped in all kinds of sin. And he would have seen them sitting there in the church. And he would have said, and that is what some of you were. They weren't that now. That's what they used to be. Now everything has changed. Now, Paul says they were washed they were sanctified they were justified and because of that their fundamental identity had changed so briefly then what does he mean when he talks about this washing sanctification and justification washing could be just a symbolic way of referring to what the lord jesus christ had accomplished i think it refers more specifically to baptism acts twenty two sixteen. 16 Paul is told to rise and wash away his sins, calling in the name of the Lord. Not that baptism physically washes away your sins, but it's symbolic of the fact that Jesus Christ has cleansed us. He has washed us. And whatever sins we have brought to the Lord Jesus Christ, our guilt, our shame, the Lord Jesus Christ, he takes us and he washes that all away so that we are now clean people. We don't have the dirt of the past that used to cling to us. Then he says that they are sanctified. And normally when we think about sanctification, we think about God's process of progressively making us more like Christ. In the New Testament, sanctification most often refers to God's definitive moment of making us holy whereby he takes us from people that didn't used to belong to him and he says right now you are mine you are set apart for me you are holy and that sanctification holiness word group it's all part of the same word group in Greek Paul says that we are now part of God's holy people once we didn't belong to God's people but now we do we belong to God and he says they were justified And this refers to the idea that they're declared right before God because previously they'd carried about a weight of guilt before God, the shame of what they've done, their condemnation. And so um, what Paul tells to them is that they have been justified. They have been put right with God. And so this has been the announcement of the verdict ahead of time in the future when, when God will pronounce over them that they are in the right, God announces that in the lives of his people now that they have been put right. And this is the experience of Christians. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. And then Paul says that it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, this isn't something which they have brought about. This has been something which has occurred through God's work in their lives. That God has transformed them. That God has made them new. And that is why they are not who they used to be. And so this verse then, verse 11, is the crux that Paul has been leading to in this chapter. And then it's the crux for what comes later. And so Sid's going to deal next week, uh, Lord willing, with the second part of 1 Corinthians 6. And again, it's built in this foundation that we are new people. We've got this new identity in Christ as those who are washed, sanctified, and justified. So what defines us? Not the sins that that used to define us, not the sins that cling to us uh, sometimes even now. What defines us, says Paul, is what God has done for us. What defines us is who God says we are. And so, if the Corinthians were going to escape from their their lawsuits, their backbiting, their 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 sins that were really devastating them, then what they needed to know was that they were not the old people that they used to be. That wasn't who they really are. Because who they really are is bound up with Jesus Christ and what he had done for them. And what about us? Because the issue of our identity is hugely important the world tries to define our identity, like I said, in terms of the way we feel, the desires, the things that we do, our, our habits, and, and all of this. And so we need to have a proper understanding of identity as Christians. And this is what the Bible actually provides for us. Because, and it's really important to know this, because some Christians then carry about the weight of past sins with them. They carry about the shame of who they used to be something that they've done in the past that they think then defines them that's got a kind of like stigma attached to them forever but paul says that is what some of you wear but you were washed he says he says in essence you don't need to carry about that shame anymore you don't need to wear that guilt anymore it's not yours because you're not the person that you used to be but even still to this day, sometimes Christians do stumble and fall into sins of various kinds. First Corinthians is proof of the pudding. You see it. They fall into these various sins. And sometimes then we flounder and wonder, are we even saved? Now, are we really part of God's people given the things that I fall into? But Paul doesn't come along and say to them, look, you're not saved. He doesn't come along and say, look, you need to actually get saved properly. No, Paul comes along and he calls them to think about who they actually are. And he says, no, you're not to live like that because that's not who you are. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And that's what you used to be. But that's not who you are. Temporary failure doesn't define you. Jesus Christ and what he has done to you, that's what defines you. And this then is the only way to live the Christian life. To realise that our identity, it's not just something that we make up for ourselves. How we feel or how we think. Our identity is something which is given to us by God himself. Who we are is who God says we are. And if God comes to us and tells us that we are washed, sanctified and justified, that's it. And we've got to believe that and we've got to live in light of that. And with that understanding of who we then are. We boldly turn our backs on our past and say, That's not who I was. That, that's not who I am. And look to the future and say that this is who I am in Christ. And not let those old habits and old sins drag us back, but to press onwards towards the goal. Uh, to the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All that God has prepared for us, we're pressing on towards that, to be given to us as those who are new people. And so may God help us to live out lives that truly demonstrate the reality of this transformation. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for the mighty work of grace that you've brought about in our lives Lord, many of us have things that we're ashamed of in our past, things even now that trip us up. And, Lord...